Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Colin Thorpe, who is Editor-in-Chief of the Science Family of Journals. Before he was Provost at Washington University, where he holds appointments in both chemistry and medicine. Welcome, Colin. Great, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I have a number of your essays, blog posts, um, things like that. And we have an eclectic group of uh, topics <laughs> that we can talk about. And uh, some of them uh, maybe get into a little bit of a policy, politics type issues. Uh, but then these are things that are important for us to debate and discuss. Um, I think in one of the pieces you say that, um, you know, uh, journalists and podcast hosts and talk, talk show hosts have opinions. And opinions are good, uh, but opinions are not facts, right? So opinions need to be validated, um, and it is not exclusive, I would say, this is my opinion, <laughs> and we can debate this, it's not an exclusive territory of scientists. Um, uh, general public can go to scientific journals, peer-reviewed articles, and to the extent that you know their education um, allows it, they can form um, informed decisions or conclusions as well. So, it is it is a it is a process that anybody can go through, but it does require validation, replication, review before <laughs> an opinion becomes a fact. So so I want to start with uh, one the first piece that you sent me. It ain't over till it's over. It is entitled, and you see the Biden administration is sheepish, sheepishly waving a checkered flag on the pandemic. Uh, and I think you, you've been a little critical of the, the Biden administration here, uh, backing off a little bit on the scientific and regulatory constraints that are placed uh, on behavior and, and other things during the pandemic. And I was uh, I was just going to Wikipedia and looking up uh, pandemic, 
And it says here, a pandemic is an epidemic of an infectious disease that is spread across a large region, for instance, multiple uh, continents or worldwide, affecting a substantial number of individuals. So COVID-19 definitely fits there. A widespread endemic disease with a stable number of infected individuals is not a pandemic. And so, so the, the question I have, Holden, is, is COVID-19 a pandemic or is it an endemic disease now? Well, I think it's awfully um, early to make that decision. I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist or a, or a virologist, but, you know, I think just the events in China of the last couple of weeks, where now we're going to have probably millions of people in, in China infected because they have a ver- relatively weak vaccine and they're departing from their zero COVID you know, we don't know the extent to which that is going to spread across the world. It probably will. And uh, uh, so, you know, I think that that's one aspect of what I was saying there. But the other aspect is that, I mean, as you said, scientific facts are established by a rigorous process. That process is send in a paper, have it reviewed, post the paper and all the underlying data where everyone can see it. Uh, and and then wait and see how that's received and see whether it's established as something that forms a consensus. It's not, a sta- those, those ideas are not established by giving press conferences or uh, pronouncing things on podcasts or writing op-eds or anything else. And so, you know, the general conflict that I talk about a lot really is the conflict between these two things. And and I think in this case, even though the people involved are very, very knowledgeable, I mean, Ashish Jha, Rochelle Walensky, these are folks who really know what they're doing, but it's it's not a winner politically to continue to spout doom and gloom about the pandemic, that's for sure. And so I get why they're taking the approach that they're taking, and I voted for them, and I I trust them to make those decisions, but I think that the communication would be a lot better if they said something, you know, more consistent with the scientific consensus, which is, we still got a long way to go with COVID, but given all the various constraints we're under, we're making the decision to start backing off. But they mm-hmm. haven't done that. They've they've suggested that they're doing this on the basis of rigorous scientific information, and I'm not aware of what that is. So I, I hear two things there, uh, Holden. Uh, one is you believe COVID-19 is still sort of a pandemic, and it's mutating, it's creating new variants that we are not even aware of, large populations in Asia uh, where there isn't enough tracking of um, variations, we are we don't really have information. So do I understand you correctly that you still believe you're going to have cycles of variations come through as pandemic? Well, again, I'm not an expert uh, on this at all. Uh, the only thing I'm an expert in 
is watching scientists talk to each other and and understanding where that leads. Um, but if I look at uh, you know outstanding experts who really understand what's going on with this that are people I've relied on from the beginning, I'd say they're still pretty cautious. And so what I disagree with the administration about is them breaking with those same experts who two years ago when we were, they were winning the election, they were clinging to <laughs> yeah. because it was a winner politically to be cautious about COVID. So I'm just asking them to be completely truthful mm. um, and about the fact that their motivations are a mix of science and politics and not just science. Yeah, that's a bit disappointing. Uh, if policy is all about politics, then um, we cannot get anywhere. Um, but as you say here, policy has to be about data, science, information, validation, verification. And in that context, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, neither, neither of us, as you say, you're not an expert, you're a lot better expert than I am. <laughs> Uh, neither of us have enough information to conclusively say anything on the disease. Uh, we see social stress, uh, and, and China's a good example of this. They tried different things, zero COVID, they backed off zero COVID now. Uh, the social stress is in some, some ways forcing policy. Um, then the question is, what's the optimum policy? If you remove the, you know, the in politics, you just want to win. You don't want to make optimum policy. But suppose we have a world where optimum policy always wins. How would you make it in this uncertain regime of information uh, that we have? Yeah, I'm, I'm not arguing that those things that you're describing are real and those are real things that have to be balanced. I'm arguing with the idea of saying that you're just relying on science when you're really relying on policy, on uh, politics and sociology and a lot of other things. Um, that's the part that I find um, objectionable because the, the general public that do, doesn't read scientific papers. They read news stories about scientific papers and they listen to people talk about what they read in scientific papers. And if that communication is obfuscating what's really in the papers, then that's contributing to a lack of trust in science and an Ill illiteracy about a lot of the things that we talk about. So I believe that um, as much work as it is, and it's easy for me to say, I'm just an opinion columnist, I'm not the person who has to do it, but um, I believe that our communicators have to do all the work that's required to make sure that they're uh, not saying anything that uh, is rigorously supported by the peer-reviewed scientific literature when they're saying that we're relying on science. Now, they could say we're guessing. They could say this is the best we think we can do with the uncertain information that we have. Uh, but when they make definitive statements, then, um, you know, that then when they have to change them, as we've seen numerous times in the pandemic, then that 
uh, really erodes trust, and that's not good. You know, science is a living, breathing process of self-correction. And as long as we tell the public that what it is is just a textbook with a bunch of stuff in it, uh, then we're always going to be uh, chasing this problem. Yeah, so, you know, I was wondering, Colin, is, isn't there an underlying problem here? You know, I, I spent half my life in India where I grew up and half my life here. And uh, both of these countries are highly information segmented. I would say, uh, high um, education variation. And so the public, as we talk about, is not at all uniform. And as you say, they don't go read scientific journals, but some of them do, but not but, but a very small percentage of them, I would say, right? So what is the, so I'm thinking, you know, you take a Scandinavian country like Sweden or New Zealand or something, small population, seven, eight million people, highly educated. Um, how we communicate there could be quite different from these large countries. In fact, I can't really see a solution <laughs> to this oh. problem in these large countries, yeah. Well, like I said, it's easy for me to say what I think the solution is. Um, but I think the most important thing is for the scientists to realize where we stand and how much work this is to do. I get a lot of people who come to me and say, oh, can't you just get more information out there for the public to deal with all this misinformation? Well, there's, there's about a million people a day on a good day for us on our website. That's a lot of people, but there's a hundred million people listening to Joe Rogan. <laughs> so Joe Rogan has a two order of magnitude advantage over us. All right, so the scientists really need to understand the fact that people don't, sure, there are people who can have the interest and ability to read the scientific literature and understand precisely what we're saying, but most people get their scientific information from intermediaries. And uh, that's the first thing that the scientific world has to accept, which a lot of the time it doesn't. And you know, this led to something that science communicators call the deficit model. All right, the deficit model suggests that the reason that people don't understand science is that we haven't done a good enough job explaining it, mm. right? So they, they don't, uh, they look at the Scopes trial, for example, and think that it was a trial about the whether the facts of evolution were communicated so compellingly that everybody would go, oh, sure, I get it, that, that um, we all came from a common ancestor. But in fact, the Scopes trial is about religion and it's about politics. Uh, it's about the religious part is the um, literal interpretation of the Bible. And the political part is the nature of public education and whether uh, the state should have the ability to say what's in public education in the United States. That those are what, that's what the Scopes trial is about. It's not about uh, you know gene lineages and phyla and and then Darwin's beak, the beaks of the finches and all that kind of stuff. That's the stuff we like, right? And. And there's still a huge part of the scientific community. And if I had one message for your listeners, this would be it. 
science illiteracy is not because it doesn't occur because we're bad at explaining things. I mean, you can go on Khan Academy and watch a video that lucidly explains anything you want. All right. So why aren't people looking at those videos? Well, because it, they've been told by ideological and 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 religious influences that we can't be trusted. So science illiteracy is a religious and political problem. It's not a scientific problem. And until we can frame that correctly, you know, we're going to continue to have um, this problem because we already have plenty of lucidly explained uh, sources out there that people can look at if they really want to understand how immunology works, for example. That could be true, Holden. Let me push back on that. Okay, bit. go ahead. Um, it's it's lucid to scientists and maybe quasi-scientists, right? I mean, um, if you if you're really interested in finding the truth, you can go do experimentation, research, look at the data, and so on. But not many people have the the time or the inclination to do it. And so, even though scientists might be out there clearly explaining everything, let's say uh, most people just don't have the time or the inclination to, to listen to it. So I think your point is same, which is it is not a communication problem. It is a political religious problem that if we are reaching there, then there is, is there a solution to that? Well, there's one other element to this, and that's something that sociologists call the academic fallacy, which says that we think people care about the same things that we care about, which is the point that you're making. So there are plenty of people out there who uh, are going about their lives, taking care of their kids. They don't have a TV. They're not political junkies. They're just folks trying to make their way in the world, and they don't have time to watch uh, one cable network say one thing about science and the other cable network say the opposite and then say, oh, oh, I need to go figure out which one of these things is correct. They don't have the the time or the or the resources in terms of, um, you know, the the having the opportunity to go look all that up. And that is certainly uh, a major player in all this. But the people who um, but the people who are disputing science because of their ideological views, they're not going to be swayed by a more lucid explanation of the thing that is in dispute. That That's my point. Have you looked into any sort of comparisons between more uniformly educated countries? You know, I mentioned Sweden, New Zealand, there could be South Korea, there could be other, other places um, compared to us. Um, is it, you know, supposed to be, you know, sort of the, the, the raw materials, the foundation uh, changes, um, or, or is that a requirement to make these communications work? Oh, sure. Well, do, do you hear about um, people in large countries in Asia being told that the Earth is 6,000 years old? No, but is in it, the United States, I think it's is a little it older than, than 6, that. <laughs> yes. I think in the United States, though, you can homeschool your kid or you can send them to a school where they're going to be taught that the earth is 6,000 years old. And um, in most countries, that's illegal. 
So that's why I say the Scopes trial was about the role of the state in education. It wasn't about the fine details of evolution. Yeah, so it's a fundamental problem and the solutions are not very clear. Um, education becomes sort of a necessary ingredient for a society to advance. It's not education. It's not education of some. It's the education of the masses that become a requirement for society to advance. But uh, we are sort of stuck in in some sort of a <laughs> uh, I don't know what to call it, but some sort of discontinuity. I think. Well, yeah, but it's 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 the seeds of it. I've been in the United States for a long time because. Uh, a lot of people believe that this goes back to their notions of freedom and that they should have the freedom to have their children learn things that are what they choose and um, not something that the state has decided uh, is the right thing. And it's a hard argument to win in the United States with somebody who says, but look, here are these founding documents that say I get to do this. And that's really the challenge that we haven't gotten over as a country, but it's worrisome in terms of American competitiveness because we're competing with countries that don't have that problem. Yes, I want to go to another essay that you have, which is somewhat related. Um, remember, do no harm. You say here when an advocacy group, America's frontline doctors, appeared on the steps of the United States Supreme Court in 2020, falsely stating, that hydroxychloroquine was the cure for COVID-19, their pronouncement was widely shared by the right-wing media and soundly debunked by the medical uh, academicians. Um, so science is not uniform. You have force in science now. Uh, some of the scientists and doctors are from well-known universities. Um, they have been practicing, some of them, I believe, um, whatever they've been doing. Um, but but science is not uniform either. So th this actually creates an additional complication vector for the you know for the general public. Uh, you say, I, mean, I, I have seen some scientists say exactly the opposite, and they're equally qualified. So how do you how do you? Yeah, well, this is a, one of the most challenging problems that we have um, because, you know, we can blame the podcast host, not you, of course, uh, the hosts of other uh, more opinionated podcasts, argumentative ones. The really for, big ones. The really big ones <laughs> yes. uh, for, um, for, you know, intentionally spreading incorrect information. But when they're doing it on the basis of uh, words that have been stated by highly qualified academicians, then that's very hard to attack. And, you know, I, I posted, and you can put the link up on this as well, a long uh, interview that I did with Tony Fauci where we discussed this point. Um, and, uh, but but the whole time that we've had these kinds of controversies in the United States, again, going back roughly 100 years, um, we've always had this problem of having 
a, a small section of the scientific world saying something that is uh, contrary to what the scientific consensus is and political and journalistic interests using that to, to create confusion or outright misinformation. Uh, we had it in, uh, I mean, the, the easiest place to start with this is in tobacco. We had, there were, they were mostly physicists who uh, decided they were experts on, uh, on tobacco and its physiological effects. And they wrote white papers and had press conferences and did op-eds in the Wall Street Journal saying that um, people were panicking and exaggerating about the dangers of tobacco. Those same people use those same tactics uh, in climate change and in ozone, acid rain. Um, and all of that is chronicled in an outstanding book by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway called The Merchants of Doubt, uh, which I would, every scientist should read. Um, and, you know, so, the, but there are two things about um, the way that played out that, um, you know, science really has to own for itself. One is, uh, did we really do enough to, to try to educate uh, the world that there was a scientific consensus about these things and that you don't challenge scientific consensus by writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal you challenge scientific consensus by doing experiments and submitting papers and having them reviewed and posted with all the underlying data. Um, and the, the, the merchants of doubt, uh, Fred Seitz and Fred Singer most prominently, they didn't do that. Now, ironically, they did that when they were doing physics. So when they were doing physics, <laughs> they, uh, they followed all of the rules of, um, of, of peer-reviewed science, but when they went on to be sort of professional uh, contrarians, they they didn't do that. Um, and uh, and and so the question is, is it on the scientific community somehow to figure out how we're going to deal with this? And of course, we've seen this in in startling detail in COVID because you have the the Great Barrington uh, Declaration Group, which includes uh, the Surgeon General of Far Florida, who I was talking about in that um, piece, uh, saying that the, that uh, you know we didn't need to have non-pharmaceutical interventions against COVID, which was not part of the scientific consensus, and which never appeared in in highly rigorous and serious. Uh, peer-reviewed publications. Uh, we we ha we put we had you know a lot of the the very powerful uh, studies showing that uh, that masks helped no, not completely but to reduce the spread of COVID. That um, that uh, um, social distancing was was worthwhile um, and. Uh, we never got any papers challenging that that we uh, that we had reviewed successfully, and we, you know, I can't share the details, but we actually tried on a few to get some reviewed. So I'm very confident that uh, a lot of these papers undermining uh, non-pharmaceutical interventions for um, for COVID would not have stood up to peer review.
I'm, I'm sure of that. Yeah, so um, I, I want to ask you this little bit on a tangent, uh, Holden. So sure. um, it seems like we have a country that is divided into at least two, perhaps four. And um, I don't want to mention any names here, um, but um, University of Florida and the state of Florida, there's a guy there who is waiting to become president mm -hmm. to make America great again, that the, the last guy couldn't quite get there, but almost did. Um, so these scientists who, who have all these ideas and opinions that are not scientifically verified are always going to have a home. Right. I mean, we have we have two different countries. Some head south and others head north. <laughs> so, I mean, is this a solvable problem? Uh, well, <clears throat> it's sort of like the other thing we were talking about. The first thing is to become aware of it. And sometimes I think uh, mainstream science tends to be naive that if we just do all our work and put the papers in the journals, then the rest will take care of itself. And that isn't true. Uh, we've proven that that isn't enough for 100 years, but we haven't really done that much about it. I mean, it's still true that, for example, in, in academia, uh, if you're a science communicator or a science policy person or a great teacher, you don't have the same uh, cred as someone who's a great researcher. And the short-sightedness of that is hitting us in the face right now. Because mm -hmm. when it comes to COVID, we did absolutely great at all the reduction of science. Uh, we, we got Paxlovid, we got the mRNA vaccines, we described every protein <laughs> in, the, in the virus, um, but we couldn't get people to do all the things that were obvious from that research. Mm -hmm. So we failed at, at Science, we succeeded at science, but we failed at social science and at communication. And partly that's our own fault because we haven't valued those folks to the same extent we have valued great researchers. And so that's step one, really, in, um, in, in this process. Now, once we achieve that uh, level of recognition, what are we going to do about it? Well, it's, it's going to be hard. Um, but um, in my opinion, the only thing we can do is what you and I are doing right now, except for way more people, and that is to help them understand that science is an iterative process uh, done by fallible human beings, but it corrects itself because uh, it's actually fun uh, and rewarding to prove that something that people believe for a long time needs to be revised. That's the whole, that's what makes science exciting. Uh, and we have not conveyed that to the public. And so they think when we say the best we know right now is the following, and then two months later, we did an experiment that shows that we need to adjust that, that, that we're incompetent. But in fact, we're highly competent at science because that's what science is. And we haven't told anyone that. Yeah, so, so we have a similar problem in economics, Holden. So, yeah. you know, my uh, focus has been sort of uncertainty and uh, related valuation questions. 
in uh, in finance and economics, if you talk about uncertainty, you say this guy doesn't really know much uh, because you know there is no uncertainty. It's all in the Excel spreadsheet. You put all the numbers in there, and out comes an answer, which is a deterministic, precise answer. Um, and so when scientists go in front of the public and they say, hey, this is what we know today, could change in the future, there's a lot of uncertainty. But public here is that, yeah, these guys don't know what <laughs> Right. <laughs> they just don't know, yeah. Right. Yeah, and, and we've got to figure out a way to get that across because not knowing is what makes science exciting. Right. Nobody so wants to go. To, to, nobody wants to go do experiments that prove stuff that we already know. Yes. <laughs> I want to go into a completely different topic. Sure. Uh, hard, not easy. Um, you say in this essay, science's breakthrough of the year is a successful launch and deployment of the James Webb Space Telescope (JWST). A um, lot of people have been fascinated by this technology accomplishment. And data is already flowing in that um, that substantially improves um, the data that we already have. Um, but let me ask you uh, a, a counter view of this. Um, I don't quite believe this, but I just want to create a debate on this. So I, I wrote a piece recently uh, that entitled Is Theory More Valuable Than Practice? And they argue that. We have left theory. I mean, 100 years ago, somebody in Princeton with paper and pencil showed us how, how the universe works by sheer intuition and mathematics. But now we have a world traveling with engineers, uh, sending stuff all over the place, collecting data. Artificial intelligence is a big deal. Uh, we have become sort of a data brokers. And that is a downside, doesn't it? I mean, don't we lose the ability to think in a data world? Uh, well, I mean, I hear in a way where you're coming from. And I do think understanding is better than seeing. But seeing comes first. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we've got a lot of great ways to see things. Uh, we've got artificial intelligence that can draw pictures of of things that you know we only imagine based on much less data. We have powerful microscopes. We have uh, powerful telescopes. We have all of this stuff to help us see things. And certainly, the process of science is not just the seeing. It's not just making the measurement. It's understanding what it means. So I guess I would say that all of these tools just make it possible for us to find even more things to understand. And if you look at the um, JWST, we did a lot of important and challenging uh, engineering in order to study some things that we've always wanted to understand, which you know, probably the two most obvious are seeing back further in time at, by being able to look at greater distances. And in the last week or so, we've seen that JWST now has collected data 
that see all the way, see so far that we're looking at only 350 million years into the history of the universe. Well, there's a lot of stuff to understand at, at that time and distance point. And also give us the ability to see um, the atmosphere of, of planets. We've already seen one now with sulfur dioxide uh, that we couldn't see without JWST. So if you're a chemist that thinks about planetary science, uh, seeing sulfur dioxide is pretty cool. You know, it's not like seeing water or dioxygen, but but still, uh, SO2 is not something that you always see. So we're already starting to see some things that we're going to need to understand, and I think that'll lead to to more theory. Yeah, and I was thinking, Claude, you know, I'm I'm just saying this for sort of a debate, which is, so 250,000 years ago in African savannah, somebody stood on top of the mountain and said, there might be land in the north and the east of here. That guy was one. And then a bunch of guys went out, did the surveys, you know, killed the leopards, and then moved away from, um, from uh, Africa. Um, but the first guy who said there could be land out there, by sheer imagination, adds tremendous value to science, right? So, you know, Einstein did not have a lot of instruments. He actually didn't see much. He, he saw just, he saw things in his imagination, right? So my fear is that the systematic education that we go through today that creates a lot of engineers and doctors and scientists, experimenters, reduces that skill of imagination. Do you agree with that? Uh, I, I certainly think that we are, but, but I think this is an addressable problem because I think that one of the, and first of all about, I'm not a huge expert on that part of anthropology, so I, I don't have any uh, thing to necessarily say about that part. But as far as the, um, as far as whether we're teaching future scientists to be creative, I do agree that we're hurting that. But I think the reason that we're doing that, or the way that we're doing that, is that we're uh, filling up these curricula with far too many redundant classes. Mm -hmm. And um, I get in very uh, vigorous debates with the engineers about this because they love their ABET requirements that <laughs> require all these courses on mass transport and thermodynamics and all of this stuff. Um, but if you look at the requirements for an ABET degree, it's very specific when it comes to the engineering things. And then the other parts, like the humanities and social sciences, that would cause you to, to wonder you know, what's possible for the world based on what the world has achieved in the past, for example. That's very vague. I mean, it, it, makes, yeah. it has little lip service in there about, oh, we should make sure this is included. But it doesn't really tell you how many differential equations classes you are get rid of in order to make room for that. Um, and and so when you so that you know that does a bunch of bad things because for one thing, it 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 creates a a burden, a didactic burden that makes uh, being a scientist or an engineer 
less attractive. And it also crowds out, you know, teaching people how to think. I mean, we live in a world, as you and I were talking about earlier, where if you want to teach yourself some didactic material, there's a large number of resources available for doing that. Uh, it's not clear you need to be sitting in a lecture hall listening to somebody talk and write equations on the board in order to do that anymore. Um, and so what we really need is a more holistic education that that gives young budding scientists the ability to balance these things and kind of sift through all of these data to find the underlying questions. Yeah. I agree. So I want to go into another another uh, topic, a couple of essays here that are related. So science needs affirmative action. As science struggles, you say here, to correct systemic racism in the laboratory and throughout academia in the United States, external forces press on, making it even more difficult to achieve equity on all fronts, including among scientists. Um, yeah, I, I know there's a case, Harvard UNC against somebody. Um, I'm a bit conflicted about this, uh, Gordon. So um, it, it seems conceptually correct that affirmative action will sort of um, make the, uh, the, the field more level for everybody. But there's a downside to it, right? I mean, is there? Uh, well, I, I don't personally see that. I think that um, I think that there are a lot of barriers to, and we were just talking about this. Uh, when we have these, uh, you know, large numbers of uh, didactic courses that everybody has to do, and when the colleges are deciding who gets to go do all that based on tests that have been developed over a long time. All of that stuff was developed, the curricula and the standardized testing that grants people access to it at a time when there weren't as many different kinds of people trying to be scientists. And so that, by definite, we know that that has created barriers for people who have other cultural norms and opportunities. And many of those uh, reduced opportunities are also the result of systemic racism uh, and other kinds of discrimination. And so if we, and, and we can measure all that, right? Social scientists can study uh, these barriers. So here we have something that we can establish using our tried and true methods of making measurements and subjecting them to peer analysis. Um, that we know are creating dislocations in opportunity. And so we're honor bound to to follow that. I mean, I think that the counter argument that some people make is that then you're lowering the um, somehow lowering the standards. Um, but we just both agreed that we're already bombarding students with too much didactic material to begin with. So if that's true, then what standards are we lowering by making uh, science more accessible? I mean, I don't I don't personally see that. And I think the imperative to live up to our ideals 
and to live up to things that we have established as as existing and needing correction uh, overwhelms all of that by a mile. Yeah, so my problem is in the selection process, Holden, uh, and you know a lot about how UNC does things. I know nothing about this. So suppose in the selection process, I have an attribute called color, and there are four colors there, brown, yellow, black, and white. And I do some sort of a scoring, um, you know, algorithm, maybe even a simple regression. And I say I have a, a an output, a required output that equalizes the these these four colors into the next class. Then these, I mean, we, we have this in the data. Um, perhaps just for argument's sake, the yellow and brown have high SAT scores but low social skills, and uh, the white has high social skills but low SAT scores. I'm just making this up. Uh, if I have a constraint optimization on the selection process, it isn't meritocracy anymore. It is actually mathematics with biases leading to admission decisions. Would you agree with that? Uh, no, because I think that the notion of meritocracy is based on outdated criteria. Uh, and and I think these things are holistic, and you it's 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 short sighted to say that this one measure, which was established by people who weren't included and is based on the the attributes of one group, is automatically applicable to everyone. that's that's uh, I don't think that's culturally sound. So I think, but I mean, we've identified the main problem here, and that is, you know, whether whether there's a way to define merit in a way that everybody could accept that would work. And I'm I'm of the ideology, which I'm I'm showing here, that um, that that's an outdated idea, and that it's an idea that has deprived a lot of people the opportunity to participate in science. And you mentioned this before, now that I say you here, I say here inclusion doesn't lower standards. Uh, you say the cultural wars raging across the United States have sadly found their way into the world of science. Some university science faculty and administrators are resistant to making changes that would allow more students from underrepresented groups to participate and thrive in the sciences. And if I remember correctly, uh, Holden, you're saying here that the administrators and the faculty are changing. They are saying they don't have the skills to be competing here, right? Something along those lines. Well, uh, the main point I'm making there is that there are things that we can do that we know, again, from rigorous research that would make it possible for more people to succeed in our courses. Now, I'm somebody who succeeded the old way. I was fine watching somebody drone on and write equations on the blackboard and <laughs> taking taking high stakes tests, okay? I wouldn't be here if I wasn't good at that. But, um, but, but there's lots of research that shows that just selecting people who can do that 
is excluding a lot of people from science when there are things we could do to make uh, our lectures, for example, more um, culturally aware by not just having, by having material in a format where you can absorb it uh, at your own at correct own, you know, pace that's right for you and by um, doing assessments that don't involve putting everybody in a room and, and making everybody be quiet and write down answers in a very large group, which a lot of people uh, find intimidating just because of um, the signals that they've received over the course of their lives. Not, and in my opinion, we owe it to, uh, to science and the future of science to try to correct for that. And it's doable, but it's a lot of work. And this is this gets to a really complicated question about the resources and priorities of of the institutions, because it's true that there are some faculty who are resistant to doing this because they think the old way makes better scientists. But there are also faculty who want to do it, but whose institutions are not sufficiently committed to this to give them the resources to change the way they teach and um, and to take time away, for example, from their research, which is what they're much more consistently rewarded for. And so there's an institutional will that needs to be there to deal with this that is also lacking. And that's that's really because universities try to do too many different things. Mm. They try to win football games. They try to make <laughs> donors happy. They try to uh, climb in these statistically meaningless rankings. Uh, they, you know, they want the students to be happy at the gym and all of this stuff. But really, the the base, most important thing should be teaching and education. Mm. Um, and most universities might say in their brochures that that's their top priority. But if you look at their actions, it's very hard to conclude that they've really made a decision to prioritize that. And and that is really affecting this particular debate, because if you're a young faculty member trying to figure out whether to be a good teacher or a good researcher, and if you want to be a better teacher, where you get help to do that, it, it, that's very confusing. Yeah, so I, I want to finish up, Holden. You have a, a paragraph here about the University of Chicago. Uh, a university very close to my heart. Uh, it says, University of Chicago has engaged in very effective public relations campaign for the past several years to brand itself as a free speech university. Um, and I have experience there. Uh, I've experienced that. Yeah, I, I don't know how to say this. I mean, um, it, it's also a little bit disappointing that some university graduates now are criminals or referred to criminal procedures to the DOJ, uh, which never happened in this university compared to the East Coast sister schools. So things are changing um, there, but you say uh, contemporarily, this is a place where you can express free ideas and it seems to stand alone. Uh, well, I hope I wasn't saying that. Uh, what what <laughs> okay. I was trying to say <laughs> was that in this whole debate about free speech on college campuses, the University of Chicago is held up as this 
by people who think that um, we should have more of what they call ideological diversity at universities as this great example. And they do have these various statements that they've made, but the same people who hold that up um, <laughs> uh, don't like a lot of things that we have in student affairs that <laughs> cater, cater to students based on their identity. Uh -huh. But if you look at the University of Chicago's website and you look at their student affairs website, guess what? They have just as many identity-oriented centers and services as any of their peers. <clears throat> so if the University of Chicago really believes that we should have, you know, identity-neutral speech, they're not living that out in terms of where they're making their investments and 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 their actions. And so, you know, I'm an opinion columnist who calls out <laughs> dislocations in the world. And I find the University of Chicago, which is an outstanding university in every respect, and you are lucky to get to spend time there um, because they do an amazing job at many different things. But they're a lot of their rhetoric, which they've really benefited from uh, in certain quarters, isn't entirely consistent with their actions. Mm -hmm. And um, so <laughs> I just think that the people that are constantly, you know, holding up University of Chicago as this great example and saying, you know, read is, is really awful because they're so ideologically to the left. Well, Reed and the University of Chicago are a lot closer to each other on the ground than than those same people realize. Yeah, I mean, so that's more of just a, a, a kind of whimsical <laughs> observation more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, it is an important observation, right? So implementing philosophy is very difficult. <laughs> uh, creating philosophy is easier. Um, yeah. So you say I'm philosophically, you know, on the left top corner or whatever, and I make statements around those, but sort of living up to those philosophical uh, background is quite difficult in a university setting. I mean, you, you know more about this than I do. Yeah, and I'm glad that the University of Chicago has all those identity-based services and and um and centers the students need all that stuff um so i guess for me it's probably good that they're not <laughs> living up to their rhetoric but the people who um but yes you're putting your finger on something very important uh which is why i say frequently as a as a columnist it's easy for me to say this i'm not the one who has to go do it and so in this case the university of chicago is saying one thing but they're finding on the ground that it's harder to do uh, and I think that's a product of the fact that there are a lot of people there who care about their students and want to give them what they need. Yeah, so so do you think as we go forward, you take all the universities in the U.S., do you think they're all going to sort of gravitate toward a common spot? Um, what do you see in the next 10, 15, oh, 20 years from now? Well, I, I hope not, because I think what's great about the um, American university system is that there are a lot of different options out there and students can find what's right for them. So I don't think they will and um, and I hope they don't uh, because um, 
students should have a choice of going to place where they um, will thrive. Um, but what I do think we need that we don't have is a more honest accounting of who fits where. <laughs> um, because you want the, as much of that out there as you can possibly get so that students can make informed choices about going to a place that fits for them. And I think, unfortunately, if you compare one brochure to another, most of the words on there are identical. You know, we want to have a supportive community where students can thrive and everyone's included and, um, you know, where you can pursue your academic dreams. And, um, you know, if you look at those brochures, how would you know how one school is different from the other? And, um, you know, it would be great if 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 universities had the courage to do that better. But it's hard because if you say this is what we are and you're a big institution with a lot of people in it, then everybody who isn't in whatever you just said is going to be very upset. <laughs> you know, um, I, I had the opportunity to spend the last six years at Washington University in St. Louis, which almost everyone in the country uh, or in the world who understands that institution would say is a life sciences oriented uh, university. It's got a big, powerful medical school and um, and the best departments in the rest of the university are life sciences oriented in one way or another. But if you're a mechanical engineer or a historian, you don't want to hear that, that WashU <laughs> is, is the land of biology. <laughs> um, and so I, I never said that when I was the provost of Washington University, even though I tried to do things that recognize the fact that that's how everybody in the world saw us. Yeah, it's good. It's good that you don't have a competitive football team, Holden. So that saves <laughs> University of Chicago two two days every week to focus yeah. on other things. Uh, I don't know about WashU, but I don't believe WashU has a competitive football team. No, WashU is in D three, and and we're in the same conference as the University of Chicago. So <laughs> we 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 play the most. Um, in fact we're the biggest rivals. We we play a football game called the Founders Cup every year, which is attended by three or four hundred people. Excellent. <laughs> yes. Excellent. Yeah, this is and I can't cool. even tell you whether we won the last one or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be crying about it. Um, no. Excellent, Gordon. So this has been great. Thanks so much for uh, doing this during a holiday week. Well, listen, Gil, great uh, talking to you. And thanks for all you're doing to spread useful information to the world. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.